you're already there in James chapter 1, so I'm going to ask you to, if you close your Bible, open up back to James chapter 1. Let me just say, we've been going through James chapter, uh, the epistle of James verse by verse, and um, today we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18, but one of the things I want to encourage you, if you missed a week, if you missed a few weeks, to go online and listen to the message. You really want to get the context because as we flow through this epistle, right, you know me, context is king, right? So if you missed one, just go online. You can go on our church website or you can go on sermonaudio.com. The messages are there and I pray that the Lord uh, will speak to your heart. Uh, last week we looked at James verses 13 through 16. We read it this, this morning in our scripture reading where James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anybody. And James in that passage over there asked the question, Can, does God tempt us? with evil in the midst of trials, testings, and temptation. And we saw that the answer was emphatically no. No. Why can't God tempt us? Well, we looked at three natures last week. We looked at the three natures. We looked at the nature of God first, and we saw that no evil could exist in God, that God is impervious to evil. That simply means that evil cannot penetrate him. God does not tolerate evil, therefore God does not tempt with evil. What a reassurance that is, right? And we're going to see in our text today that we have a God that doesn't manipulate us. He doesn't vary on us. So we looked at the nature of God. The second thing we looked at is we looked at the nature of man. And contrary to God's holiness, we learned that human beings basically were products of the fall, we are penetrated by evil, therefore we can be affected and we can be tempted and that nature lies within ourselves. So we are vulnerable. We're vulnerable to sin. It exists in our nature. As Paul says, it exists in our flesh. And the third element we looked at is the nature of sin or the nature of evil and we saw that because sin exists in us, sin is birth when we're carried away and we're enticed by our own lust. And those lusts are the things that we want, that we are willing to forego the safety of God. It are the things that we want and that we go after. And when we are in that situation, temptation comes to us quite easily. In our text today, we're going to see that James is going to go back for a moment to the nature of God to show us that the nature of God, what the nature of God really produces, the nature of God produces every good gift and every perfect gift. That's what the nature of God produces. And knowing this gives us strength for the trial. It gives us strength for the test. What joy is it in knowing that we have a God who is always working for good in the lives of believers. He's ever working for good. And one thing you may want to remember about that is God's good. Sometimes we don't see what God's good is immediately. But we know that our God will always do that. 
And knowing that produces a living and an active faith. Now, I want to qualify this. I said when we did the introduction to the epistle of James that the epistle of James is a book about faith. That's what it's a book about. But it's a book about living and active faith in Christ. So we saw at the very beginning... James talks about having faith in trials, which is, we've been through these these texts over the last four or five weeks looking at faith in trials. But the faith that James speaks about is a faith that produces good works. It gets manifested by works that glorify God. And we're going to see that a little bit more in detail. And we're going to see today in our text that God gives us these good things. He brings about these good things, these good gifts, and he does so by his will. And we're going to talk a little bit about the will of God for believers. And he does it by his will through the gospel of grace, through the gospel of truth. So turn with me to James 1, verses 16 through 18. And they read as follows. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits among his creation. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. And 16 and 17, as a matter of fact, it's very important that you understand, 13 to 18 is one collective thought. It's one collective thought, right? So we're, we're intercepting this here at verse 16 this week, which begins with, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived, brethren. Now that do not be deceived goes back or contextually goes back to verse 13. In verse 13, again, the question is posed, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot uh, be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt with evil. But each one is tempted when he's carried away. And remember I told you, carried away is a word that means lord. It's a hunting term. He's luring, he's, he's luring the prey. He's luring the prey to come out of its safety. That's the imagery that it gives. We're carried away. We're willing to leave the safety of God. We're willing to forsake the things around us. So James says here, each one is tempted when he is carried away and when he is enticed. And that word enticed, I told you, means to bait a hook. Same premise. You're going fishing, right? Use a particular lure that may look like a certain fish or use a worm on a hook and the fish comes along not realizing, right? And the, and the fish gets caught. So he says, we are tempted when we're carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now James says, do not be deceived. I don't want you to think this way. 
I don't want you to be deceived. Now I'm going to tell you what truly is. And he says, being the fact that God cannot be tempted by evil, God does not tempt anyone with evil, God never uses evil to do anything, don't be deceived by that. And now he establishes, he goes back to the nature of God. Look at verse 17. He says in verse 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I like there in the, in the King James, it says every good gift is bestowed and every perfect gift is from above. James states, and he states it rather emphatically here, that God does not have any responsibility for sin, that it is not in God's nature, so therefore no one can accuse God of ultimately being responsible for sin. What does that look like? That looks like that when you're in a trial, when you're in a temptation, and you can't figure it out, and everything around is pressing in in an ungodly way that no one can say, well, God put me here. I'm therefore, it's God who is responsible for me being in this situation. And remember, the temptation, the word for trial or temptation takes on both a negative and a positive meaning. When it's a test by God, it is a positive. We go through trials to be tested by God, not to see how much we can endure. I want to I emphasize that. God doesn't sit in heaven and say, okay, let me see. I gave that person cancer. Now let me see. Let me give them a heart attack too. Let me see how much they can endure. That's not it. We are tested by God that our faith would be cultivated, developed, and matured that we become perfected. It is a means of sanctification. It is a means of holiness. The temptations, uh, the tests of God are designed to build character in us. They're designed, not generic character, faith in God. And I'll tell you what, I keep saying this over and over and over again. When we talk about faith in God, is having that assurance, having that absolute confidence in the plan and in the purpose and in the person of God. We rest in that. Father, I don't know what you're creating here. I don't know what I'm going through. I know the pressures are being pushed in. But Father, I am going to trust in your perfect plan. And I am going to trust in your perfect plan. There is a perfect purpose. And I am going to trust that you are perfect God. And you don't manipulate. And therefore, Father, even though I may be stressed beyond all words, I am going to lay hold of your character. And I am going to rest in you, God. That's the test for the believer. The temptation comes, we just saw in verse 14, when we're carried away, when we want what we want, when we're being tempted and lured by sin and the desire is in our heart to do so. That's the temptation. That's the negative 
term. James states here, what proceeds from God, I want you to know this, what proceeds from God, and it proceeds out of his nature, are not sins, but rather gifts and blessings. And these gifts and blessings, they reflect God's nature. They reflect God's nature. Therefore, what comes from God and what, is, and what God is responsible for, James answers that. Every good thing, every good gift, and every perfect gift. That term good gift or good thing literally means a gift. I mean, that's what it literally means. But it's a gift with the intention and the aim that motivates the giving. In other words, it's a gift from God that God intentionally uses to bless. God is pouring out that gift. He's pouring out that blessing. And that perfect gift there speaks of a gift that has reached maturity. It is tried and it is perfected. Notice this. God has a perfect nature. God's nature is impervious to sin. Therefore, there's no evil. There's, there's no nothing that inherits. So what is it that only God can give? That which is perfect. That which is good. That which is holy. And so God creates in his children what? Holiness. And a desire for holiness. And the believer in Christ revels in the nature of God. That we could be assured of the God in whom we worship. And not only assured in the God we worship, but we could be assured of his workings in our life. You know, God stands in amazing contrast to the pagan gods. Does he not? The pagan gods whose whose characters were formed by the men who created them. And if you look back in history and you look at the pagan gods, what do you see? You see the same characteristics that exist in men. They're, they're jealous. They're vindictive. They're, they're sometimes taking what doesn't belong to them. There's power struggles and everything else. But the true and living God, the holy God, Jehovah, stands in direct contrast to the pagan gods and only god can bring forth that which is good that which is good morally that which is good spiritually and that which is perfect and complete i love knowing i have a perfect god i love that I love knowing that God is not a manipulator. I love knowing that when I am in a crisis and I lift up my voice to pray to God, that God will give to me wisdom and that wisdom will be perfect and it will come down from the Father and strengthen me in that trial. You know when you're in a trial, right, everything's hemming in on you, right? It's, 
There's never this freedom when you're in a trial. It's pressure. I love the verse earlier in James chapter 1 where he says, And if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally, generously, and without reproach. I think I mentioned it when we covered that verse. You really need to stop and, uh, at that verse and pause for a minute because what it actually means is that in the trial, when you cry out to God for wisdom, Father, what should I do? What should I be doing? That God will pour out more wisdom than you could ask for. So it's going to be poured out abundantly but that God gives it without reproach. God doesn't stop and say, why should I give you wisdom? Every time I've given you wisdom before, you went and blew it. Why should I give you wisdom? Didn't you just sin the other day against your brother or sin against your sister? Why should know that he gives it liberally? It's poured out. You know, every time I look at that verse, I think of the story of the young boy with the five loaves and the two fish. And here's a great example of that in that story. When Jesus was there feeding the 5,000, which was more probably like 15,000 people, right? And they sat down, they were hungry, they needed to eat. And you know the story. Oh, Lord, there's a young boy there. He has five loaves and two fish. What is this for such a mob? What did Jesus say? Bring them to me. Bring them to me. And he took the, the loaves and he took the fish and he blessed it. He gave thanks. And what did he do? He broke it and started filling baskets. Go ahead. Give it out. Give it out. Give it out. And the word of God says that everyone ate till they were full. They had more than enough. Nobody got a morsel. He didn't take the five loaves and, you know, microscopic little crumbs and said, here you go. Everybody ate until they were filled. And what does it say after that? And they took up 12 baskets left over abundance. God didn't meet the initial need. God exceeded the need. God gave it, Christ gave it liberally. Without reproach, he didn't single out anybody in the crowd and say, well, you get, you, know, you get bread and fish, but you don't because you're a bad person. He gave it liberally. That's an image that we could have of God. These good gifts that he talks about here in James, these perfect things, even in the midst of trial, God pours it out and he pours it out liberally. If you look at verse 17, he says, Every good gift is bestowed, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The Father of lights. This is another word for God. It's an ancient Hebrew term for God as creator and the giver of lights. We know in Genesis, God said, God decreed, Let there be light. And there was light. And light came into being. 
And God created the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe, which all give off its light. And the light shines, does it not? And it illuminates the skies that are around it. But God is also the giver of spiritual light. And he provides the light that illuminates the darkened soul. And Jesus even sees, Jesus himself even seized on this description of being the light of the world. He did so because Jesus was there. He was there in the creation. He was the agent of creation. And Jesus came and brought spiritual light into the world. And he opened the eyes of those who were spiritually blind. John 8, 12 says, and again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. John 9, 7, Jesus said this, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. James says all good things come down from the Father of lights, and he makes a statement after it, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So you say, what's all this got to do with each other? Well, it's simply this. Unlike the heavenly bodies, that perhaps one night will be shining and, and bright, and the sun will be shining and bright and out there. But there are things that can hide the sun. You have a cloudy day, an overcast day, right? You don't see the brilliance. You don't see the glory of the sun. And there are times at night when you don't see the moon or you see a quarter of the moon or you see a half of the moon. Or if the clouds are particularly thick, you look up in the skies and you can't see the stars. Or there could be other atmospheric issues that prevent you from seeing. Notice what James says. They come down from the Father of lights, the creator, the agent of all there is. But notice with God, there is no variation. No shifting shadow. There is nothing. There are no clouds. There are no atmospheric conditions. There is nothing that could obscure the glory of this holy and righteous God. He does not vary. He does not change. God is immutable. God does not change. Hence in God there is no variation. There's no shifting. What does that say? That we have a God who is consistent. He is consistent. The word of God would say about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have a God who is consistent, a God in whom there is no change. In Numbers 21, verse 19, Listen what it says. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God is constant. God is consistent. His nature, his attributes, his dealing with us. 
God is not situational. I want you to know that. God is not situational. Big thing in our world today is situational ethics. Well, I could do this at this time, but another time it may not be appropriate. And because God is constant in nature, because God is constant in character and personality, we do not have to waver in unbelief. I want you to know this. We don't have to waver in unbelief in him and in his word. God and his word is sure and dependable. What does that mean? It means we can rely completely and wholly upon him. Therefore, the believer can rest. And the believer can find peace in God's goodness to his children, despite the trial, despite the test. James' point is that just as we cannot attribute evil to God, because sin is not in his nature, we must attribute all good things in every perfect gift to God because they all flow from him. They all flow from him. Look at verse 18. James continues, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. James completes this thought of speaking of God's purpose and his goodness and mercy, and he uses it. It is the redemption of sinners. It is the redemption of sinners by God exercising his good will. James writes that God exercised his good will to these early believers. These are the ones, remember when we started, he's writing to early Jewish believers who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, and they have been dispersed into the world. Now this becomes important here in verse 18 because this is going to give you the context. James uses three straightforward and distinct terms speaking of this great redemption that God had poured out upon these early believers. And they are as follows. He says, the exercise of his will, that's one, Two, brought forth in the word of truth. Let's look at these three ter uh, terms found in verse 18. Number one, the exercise of his will. This term is a reference to the sovereign will of God in salvation. The technical definition is to plan with total resolve right? So it involves, it, it, it involves a plan of which there is total resolve to. It's a determination. It carries with it the idea of being predetermined. So it carries the idea of being predetermined and determined intentionally 
to the believer. Used here in this verse, you could simply think of it as to will deliberately. God willed deliberately. That is an amazing thought. What's an amazing thought is that we weren't a cosmic accident. What is an amazing thought is that God determined beforehand. What's amazing is that, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, that we were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. That our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. God had determined, and by the way, it's not up to us to say, why did he determine? He just determined. He made his choice. God had determined before the foundations of the world that he would bring this gospel and he would redeem fallen, sinful mankind. And God had a specific purpose, a very specific purpose, and a deliberate will to bring this about. God had a specific purpose and a deliberate will. And God determined the who, what, where, and when regarding redemption, and God acted solely upon his will. He acted solely upon his will. You turn to John chapter 6. I want you to see the words of Jesus regarding this. John chapter 6, verses 37 in 39, Jesus speaking regarding his ministry. I want, to, I want you to see what Jesus says here. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All who the Father gives me will come, from, come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And he defines this now. And he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now I want you to notice something. Look, look at the first sentence. All that the Father gives me. The Father has given Believers to Christ. That's a great thought. The Father has, has given believers. And those believers, when they come to Christ, none of them will be cast off. None of them will. But it goes further. It says, this is the will of him who sent me. This was God's will. This was God predetermined will. God acted solely upon his will. What was the will that Jesus is referring to? That of all he has, now notice, all he has given me, it's already done. 
Do you see that? Because God acted in his will, it was already done. All who the Father have given me, in our English, it's in the past tense. It's, it's taken place. The Father has given them to the Son. Here, these are yours. And so much confidence the Father gives it that Jesus says, I lose nothing. No one is lost in the transaction. Why? Because God had determined. The Father of lights had made that ter- determination and he made it in the exercise of his will. Look at the second phrase there, going back to James 1.18. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Brought us forth. The verb means simply give birth. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. And he says there, by the word of truth. How were these believers to whom James is writing saved? God brought them forth by the exercise of his will with the word of truth. What's the word of truth? It's the gospel. It's God's word is the word of truth. He brought them forth with the word of truth, the gospel, the means of salvation and redemption in Christ. Look, in John 1, 17, Jesus, uh, John writes, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 8, 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Romans 10, 17, So faith cometh by hearing, by hearing by the word of God. It was the word of truth, it was the word of God that God used to bring forth these early believers. These believers had come to the place that upon hearing the gospel, where the word of truth had set them free from the law of sin and death, these believers heeded the gospel. They heard and they acted. There's the element of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They heard and they acted. They heard and they acted. God had given them the faith to believe. They opened their eyes. That faith opened their eyes, causing them to receive the word of truth, and they were born again. And they believed with their hearts, and they confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in so doing, here comes the last phrase, they became the first fruits of his harvest. What are first fruits? First fruits was an agricultural term in ancient days. First fruits were the best crops that were harvested. And they gave indication of the rest of the harvest. So they harvest the first fruits, the best crop, and by examining that harvest, there's a a, a likely prediction, and you say, okay, the rest of the harvest is going to look like this. Oh, praise God, look at what we got here. This is the terminology that James is using. He's speaking figuratively. 
hey, these early believers, these early Jewish believers who came to faith in Jesus Christ, many of them ex, uh, excommunicated from the synagogue, many of them being persecuted in the Roman culture, being dispersed. Well, guess what? They've been suffering trials, but they could hold to Christ because he is faithful and true. He's not a manipulator. He's the father of lights. He's the one responsible for every good gift and every perfect gift that comes down comes from him. Guess what? You can have confidence in them, and I'm going to tell you something. You are the first fruits. You're the first fruits harvested for the gospel, and you're the promise of a greater harvest that's going to come. These believers were the first fruit of the redemption of Israel. They were first fruits of the church and they were a guarantee of a fuller harvest. Guess what? Unbeknownst to these early believers, they did not know of a fuller harvest to come. They did not know of the Gentiles coming. They did not know that the gospel will go forth and hit every corner of the world and believers will come from every nation and every tribe and every tongue through the millenniums. And it will be so until the day of Jesus Christ. Also, they did not know that there would be a greater harvest in Israel, that one day all Israel will look upon me in whom they appear, says the prophet Zechariah. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. It's at that day that the greatest revival in the history of the world will take place. So they can hold to their faith in Christ amidst their suffering and trials. I want to share something. Many of you may be first-generational Christians. You may be the first one in your family to have gotten saved. You may be the first one. Well, you too are a first fruit of a greater harvest that's going to come. And who are those unsaved loved ones that you pray for and unsaved friends that you pray for that you've been testifying to and you've been witnessing and perhaps they've been harsh, perhaps they may criticize, perhaps they may do all of those things, but you are that first fruit. You hold to faith in Christ. You hold and have your confidence in the plan and the purpose and in the person of God. You testify for God and God will bring forth a greater harvest than you could ever imagine. You may not be here to see it. You may not be here to see it, but God will do it. So as we conclude with verse 18, James writes to encourage suffering believers to have faith in Christ, even amid their trials. And it should encourage us. It should encourage us that, number one, that God will never tempt us with evil. 
Amen? He'll never tempt us with evil in our trials. It should encourage us, number two, that every good and perfect gift comes from God through the exercising of His goodwill. Don't forget those last three words, the exercising of His will. God exercises His perfect will in our lives. And that number three, that as believers, we can have confidence in God. And we can have confidence in God in all circumstances. All circumstances. And we know that God is for us. For the believer in Jesus Christ, God is for us. Therefore, if God is for us, we got to ask the question as Paul asked it. What could be against us? What could be against us? And this is the portion of James where we conclude this, this portion where he's talking about trials. And as I said at the very beginning, I say again, this is a book about faith. Living, active faith. Faith in God. And now the book is, we're going to go through a transition. Beginning in verse, um, in verse 19, we're going to transition this book now. Actually, James transitions this book. We're just going to follow where James is going. We're going to see now as James starts to get into the deep elements of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have faith in God? And the epistle's going to shift. James talked about how we could have confidence in trials. James is now going to show us that saving faith, saving faith produces behavior that is consistent with the gospel. And James is going to make a very compelling argument for what true faith in Christ looks like. Now, in this epistle... We're going to see that James states that it is inconsistent, inconsistent with the gospel to say one believes something that they do not live. It's inconsistent. He rejects the idea. He flat out rejects the idea of passive, intellectual, non-effective faith. I want to make that clear. Passive intellectual, that means, oh, I believe in certain facts about something, but those facts are not lived through my life. He's going to reject that idea. And we're going to be confronted with truth that may shake some of us. I'm just telling you right now, it's, I didn't write it. He wrote it through the Holy Spirit. James calls for holy living. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, he calls for people who call themselves Christians. Notice what he says. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word. In verse 22. In chapter 2, James deeply, deeply studies the doctrine of faith versus works. This is where a lot of people get crossed up. The question he asks is, does faith justify us or are we justified, justified in the sight of God, 
Are we justified by our works, as some other Christian groups may claim? And how do faith and works coexist? What's the dynamic between the two? James writes in James 2.17, Even so faith, if it has no works, is a dead faith. We've got to deal with this. In chapter 3, James writes about bridling the tongue, putting a harness on our mouth. He says, writing in, uh, James writes, with the tongue, he says, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. James 3.9. In chapter 4, James warns about becoming too comfortable with the world. And he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How do you like that one? Whoever is a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In chapter 5, James encourages believers to be patient and endure, stating, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near, praise God. The coming of the Lord is near. Is near. Now listen, if we approach this epistle with honesty, it will challenge us. It's going to challenge us, and challenge is good. It's good. It will sharpen us. It will cause us to draw nearer to Christ, to become more effectual in our faith. All I'm simply saying is be prepared to be challenged in the upcoming weeks. As my dear brother Mike Corbin said regarding the epistles of James, he said, James is a needle-in-the-eye type of study. And you know what? It's true. But let me encourage you with this. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide between the bone and the marrow. What the church needs, what the churches need today is that sharp, piercing, two-edged sword. And we need to lose more and more of the world and the world's influence. And we need to be drawn nearer to Christ. God in his perfect will through the agency of the Holy Spirit, pen these words. Therefore, these words are for us, for the believer in Christ. And God doesn't do it to randomly assault or to hit. God does it because it is every good gift right here. Here is the good gift. Here is the perfect gift and we're going to have a great opportunity to dive into the word and hear from the lord praise god you bow your heads in a word of prayer